It is a short passage I want to focus on today. And it is a summary passage. It's a passage that the writer here gives to us to summarize the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. There are other passages like that in Matthew chapter 4. There's a similar kind of summary passage. And I point that out to you because I think what we see here is a pattern of ministry within the Lord. You can look at any particular incident in Jesus' life and any particular ministry opportunity and see different aspects. But when you have these summary passages, I think it's helpful for us to stop and just say, what is the thrust of how our Lord went about ministering to people? And uh, as has been said today, this is the kind of passage that frames my way of thinking that we will then walk into together as we uh, do the Saturday morning times of how do you actually do this practically uh, with each other. And so uh, let me read this passage of Scripture. Verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. One of the most revolutionary facts in the New Testament, in my judgment, is that every Christian, every believer, is a minister of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't use the title reverend and formal titles like that with every Christian. Nor does that mean that there are no pastors or elders, of course, in the church. There are. The scriptures are quite plain that God has given to his church, that the risen Christ has given to his church pastors and teachers. But what is that role? Ephesians 4.12 tells us. The role, according to Ephesians 4.12, is that these pastors and teachers, these special leaders that God has given to the church, are to equip God's people for works of service. Works of service. So that the body of Christ might be built up. Works of service. In other words, works of ministry. How will your church grow? How will your individual relationships with one another grow? They will grow not merely from the ministry of the elders of your church, but they're going to grow from your ministry. In fact, the task then of the elders of the church, at least a major part, is to strengthen, equip, teach, guide, encourage, admonish, and help the people of God to be able to more effectively serve and minister to each other. The late uh, John R. W. Stott, long-time great minister of God's Word, uh, recalls this wonderful little story in his life. He went to a church one time in um, Connecticut. It was an American Episcopal church. And on the front cover of the bulletin, the uh, Sunday bulletin, the announcement said this, the name of the rector, you know, the, the pastor in the Episcopal system, and then the names of the associate rector and the, the name of the uh, assistant to the rector. And next came this one line. It said this, ministers, colon, the entire congregation. 
And uh, Stott says this, it was startling, but undeniably biblical. Now, that's not startling to us, is it? We think we understand that. We're, we're low church, right? We're, we're not the, the, the high liturgy of other uh, Christian denominations. But nevertheless, though we talk about the uh, role of the ministry of everyone, every member ministry, I think at times we forget that. And I think at times we actually neglect that focus. Ephesians 2 Having talked about this glorious salvation that God has wrought, I love your, your song selection today. Thank you, whoever chose the, the music for today. Very refreshing to my soul. I, 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 I love that. And Ephesians 2 talks about this glorious salvation, but you remember what the, 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 the goal of that in, in 2.10 is all about? For, because we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Why? To do, to, to do good works, to, to minister, to serve. Galatians chapter 5, in uh, talking uh, in, at length in the previous chapters about uh, God's law and the relationship of grace and how God has brought a saving grace in chapter 5 verse 1 and the freedom we now have. Freedom to do what? To live any way as we want? No, freedom to serve one another. Hebrews chapter 10, what do we do when we gather together as the people of God? Well, there's a lot of things we do. We are certainly uh, singing together, and we are praying together, and we're allowing God's word to be taught to us. But the gathering also must include this mindset. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and, and good deeds, and then just a couple chapters later into chapter 13, part of the ministry that God has given to us as priests, as New Testament priests, us, he says this, do not forget to do good and to share with others. Why? For with such sacrifices God is pleased. And uh, Peter must not be neglected here either. The Apostle Peter tells us that each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. And so the picture you get from the New Testament is that the body of Christ together is serving and ministering to one another. And one of the great privileges we have as followers of Christ is not only to know that our own relationship with God is made right, not only to know that uh, we have an internal destiny set before us, but also to know that we're part of a team that we are part of a ministry team as we minister together, that we are on the side of Christ, that we are a, a player in, God's, uh, in God, God, God's kingdom, God's economy, to advance that kingdom. Now, let me press that a little further before we look into the text. And that is that this revolutionary fact that all of us are ministers is not to be limited to just Sunday. It has to do with all of our life. Every day, every relationship, 24-7. If you are married, you have a ministry. Now, when you hear the phrase marital ministry, what do you think of? You think of a marriage retreat, a marriage conference, maybe marriage counseling. Or do you think of your daily one another relationships? When you think of children's ministry, I know what you think of. 
All of our churches try to have a good children's ministry, right? You're thinking of the programs. You're thinking of what's going on even right now, perhaps, and other kinds of ministries you do with the, ki- with the children. But do you only think of formal programs? Do, do you look at what you're doing as a parent, as a grandparent, as an uncle or aunt, as a ministry? I'm ministering every day. How about your workplace? You have a workplace ministry? Oh, yeah, I, I've heard about uh, corporate chaplains of America. Is that? No, no, no. Do you have a ministry with your coworkers? Ministering in a daily way. Every believer is a minister. All our daily activities, 24-7, are ministry-related. All our relationships have a ministerial feel as we understand this vision of the New Testament. So the key question is no longer, do you have a ministry? You're on the team. You, you do. The question now is, how well do you do it? And how can you grow in doing it more effectively? And uh, that's what I want us to think about this morning, and then t- to invite you into the uh, further uh, training that we will, will provide. In order to become effective in our ministry, we need a model. And I want to set before you our Savior today as the model, the quintessential model. Now, now this passage doesn't include every possible aspect. As I said to you before, this is a a summary. There's details not here. And, And some of the individual incidents that we could look at might tend to push something that's not even in this passage. But this is a good starting place, I would suggest. And so let's look at uh, this passage and think about not only then what Jesus has done for us, what he is doing in the passage, but let's think about what that would look like as we begin to think about doing this uh, toward each other. All right, so in chapter 9, 35 through 36, we have this this ministry uh, passage, this this strategy, this, this model before us. And I see three movements here. The first is that our Lord Jesus enters the world of the crowds, enters the world of the people. Now, of course, in one sense, in one very powerful sense, Jesus Christ has already entered the world in this scene through the incarnation. As John 1 tells us, the Word became flesh. Well, there's the there's the mega entrance into the world, right? The world became the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, the leaving the glory of heaven to be born in a, in, in human likeness. But as we see in the in the text, he didn't come to earth and just sort of hang out in headquarters somewhere, and then uh, send emails or letters or just send representatives. He himself got on foot and went actually into and through the towns and villages. And while these summary passages, like this one, is talking about his work with crowds, when you begin to read the rest of the gospel accounts, you find that those summaries of working with crowds involved a lot of individual one-on-one. Our Lord Jesus spent a lot of time with individuals. And uh, that, that's, that's the model I want us to be thinking about here. We could also say this, he didn't just spend time with good people. If you go over, as my Bible is actually open to chapter 10 and 11 before me, if I look over in uh, chapter uh, 11, 
in verse 19, it tells that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus had no limitation as to whom he would hang out with, uh, who he would spend time with here. And so Jesus then comes into the lives of people. And you know what? He continues to do that even today. I, I love the song we sang about before the throne of God above, where he right now intercedes for us. He right now enters our world through his Holy Spirit. He now indwells us. He is with us. So that's, that's the picture I want us to begin with. And what does that have to do with our lives? I want to suggest to you that effective ministry with one another is going to begin with this mindset of entering into the world of another person. And uh, we'll, we'll try to get more practical in, in, in the Saturday trainings, but, but let, me, let me just say a few things right here. What does that entail? What does it look like to get into the life of someone? Simply put, it's going to involve spending time with each other. And like you, I'm pressed with time priorities. All of us have 168 hours in the week. Uh, someone has said this that I, I think is a very, very brilliant observation. You always have enough time to do what your God, now make that a small g for a moment, what your God wants you to do. Now if your God, the small g, is the Lord God, which by profession he is, but also in practice, then our priorities tend to get rightly ordered. The problem is that we have com competitions to the Lord God in the form of small g's. And those small g's are what is going to make it very difficult for us to set the proper priorities. So what is the capital G God calling us to do? Because we can guarantee that you always have enough time to do what your God wants you to do starting then with committing to spend time with other people. Um, this requires, of course, intentionality. This is not just going to happen. You're not going to roll out of bed. Because it, what's going to happen is, is the pressures of the day, the demands, the requests from your family, from your children, from your job situations, from your church ministries, will just be constantly pulling you and calling you to... Uh, serve them. You have to be able to take a step back and say, Lord, what are you calling me to do as I move toward people in my world? What is that going to look like here? Uh, for me, it begins on a Sunday morning when I'm driving from my house to the congregation that I'm a part of. And as I drive there, uh, praying, Lord, Help me to reach out to some key individuals today. My friends, members of my church, just like you all in your church, have probably, some of them had a really hard week. Some of them are bearing very heavy burdens. I remember watching as part of a counseling training program that I was in, a video that had been produced by Chick-fil-A. I don't know if it's still used in their training but it was the picture of various customers coming to the Chick-fil-A counter. And as the camera would zoom in on one customer, the graphic would appear. 
single mom recently divorced, three children. And then another person would zoom in a man, um, just lost his job. And the camera would zero in on all these different individuals, the typical people you're going to see of Chick-fil-A. And may I say the typical people you see next to you today. If that camera were to zoom in today and, and just see each of you, you have a story. And the point of the training video is uh, counter workers be sensitive to the various struggles that people are facing. Entering into the world of others. What hinders us from doing that? All sorts of things. Let's, let's own it today. Feelings of superiority. Self-righteousness. Self-centeredness. Self-absorption. Maybe unbiblical notions of holiness that means I'm to be separate from, from sinners. And of course, there's a right way where that needs to happen in cases of, of, of discipline in the life of a church, but that's not what the norm is for the Christian life, to reach into the lives of other people. And so what do we need to do? We need to identify and, and own those ways that we are failing to connect relationally with each other. And so the first step I see our Lord Jesus doing here is entering into the world of the, uh, the crowds here. The second step I see our Lord doing here is understanding their need. And understanding their need with compassion. And so you look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, the crowds into whose lives he was entering, he had compassion on them because, and now there's a pair of descriptors here, they were harassed and, and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. What, what is it that Jesus sees here as he looks at the crowds? Does he see primarily men versus women? Does he see primarily tall versus short, rich versus poor? State fans versus Carolina fans versus... I mean, what are the distinctions <clears throat> that Jesus brings here? And how do you and I look at people? I had the privilege of being just recently in South Africa for the first time in my life. It was a, it was a great trip. And let me rephrase that. It was a great time in South Africa. The trip to get there wasn't that great, and the trip to get back was worse. And I won't give, I'll spare you the details, other, other than say I had two extra hotel nights, uh, courtesy of the air, airliner, uh, thankfully, two extra hotel nights I wasn't counting on, but nevertheless, we made it back. But uh, what was fascinating to me was being in Johannesburg and uh, being up on the top of Africa, they call it, some of you may have been there before, and, and seeing the whole city, but then walking a little bit in the city and seeing the people there, and then going to uh, uh, Soweto, the uh, place where there are apparently still the highest concentration of AIDS cases among the, um, the black African uh, there. Looking at the crowds, and yet talking with some of them, 
and, and realizing everyone's different. Everyone has a different story. Everyone has a different uh, in, in individual personality there. And then coming back, we're on a, uh, um, the SkyTrain at JFK. I'm in the minority. As a, a white male European-American, I'm in the minority. It's so, so much fun for me. I'm hearing languages. I don't know what they're saying. But it, it was so cool to be there. And I realized there are crowds, but within the crowds of people, there's individual stories. Here's what Jesus sees when he looks at this crowd of people here. He sees that they are harassed, uh, bothered, annoyed. That word has that sense of, of trouble, distressed, and, and helpless. Has here a flavor of being cast down, of um, being down and out, of being hurled down. Uh, how did this come to happen? Uh, why were they harassed and helpless? Well, probably in the context flow of Matthew here, it is the ungodly leadership of the religious leaders of the day, the ungodly Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, the false teachers and shepherds. Uh, later in this same gospel, we learn about the strict burdens and legalisms that were imposed by the Pharisees and the hypocritical nature of their leadership and the lack of care. And so these people of Israel are suffering, harassed and helpless by the lack of leadership there. Um, some of us perhaps still struggle with remnants of false teaching that we were under or poor and uncaring leadership that we were under. Um, but I don't want to limit it to just this immediate context here. What does it mean in our day to be harassed and helpless? Perhaps it's living under the lies of a culture that we live in or the ungodly models of the culture we live in. Ideas that friends propagate, even advice and counsel you might get from parents who might mean well but who aren't thinking biblically about life. Temptations and persecutions and accusations from the evil one. We sang about that today. Uh, when Satan accuses the lies that we receive there. All this makes life hard for people. Uh, resistance and rejection and, and even persecution in some cases from non-Christians in your world even acquaintances, even family members. You, you face those kinds of temptations. And that, that produces a, a harassed feeling, a helpless, helpless feeling. And of course, the number one enemy that all of us face is our own sin. The consequences we continue to reap from our sinful choices, past choices and present choices, we continue to reap those kinds of, of problems sin that no longer reigns in us, but does certainly remain in us. And so we think of the spiritual warfare that we face, the flesh versus the spirit. The things I want to do, I don't do. This is the kind of reality that all of us face. Well, what is it then that God calls us to do with each other? It's to learn to understand, learn to diagnose. He, he uses a metaphor here, Sheep without a shepherd. 
This is probably one of the saddest descriptors in, in the Gospels. Would you agree? Sheep without a shepherd. Sheep, a, a major way God looks at his people, right? A very common descriptor in the Bible. But here, sheep without a shepherd. Now this passage surely is prophetic of what Jesus came to do. I mean, Matthew knows who is the answer to sheep without a shepherd. And he's quite plain, as the whole Bible tells us, that Christ has the, is the one who has come as the shepherd, the shepherd king. Uh, the good shepherd in John 10 who lays down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd. The uh, great shepherd of the sheep who has been raised from the dead in Hebrews 13. And the chief shepherd of the sheep in 1 Peter 5 who, who will reward his people. And the problem then in humanity, I think here in this passage, and I think we see elsewhere, is this problem of living life without a vital relationship with a shepherd. Now, to the extent we see this, its primary sense here is, is evangelistic, I believe. I do believe this is a call to that Christ comes and evangelizes. But I think we can extend that as we see this pattern of Jesus, as we see him deal with his own disciples in similar ways, he enters their world. He understands their peculiar struggles. As you see him interact with the woman at the well, as you see him interact with his own disciples, as you see him uh, dealing with those disciples on the road uh, to Emmaus, and the hopelessness, and really the, the, the sheep without a shepherd feel that they had as they were really bummed out. You remember, the text tells us they were cast down, they were, they were discouraged, they were in despair, because why? Their, their Lord that they thought was the Messiah, he went and died on them. My, my Savior went and died on us. And you know, the irony of, of their despair that Christ died. You know, we look at that now from this side of the cross and say that's the glory of the Savior, that he died and that he was raised again. But they didn't get that in their discouragement. And so Christ comes alongside of them, doesn't he? He enters into their world. He understands what's going on. And then he brings his truth into their life. It actually comes as a form of a rebuke. Foolish people, he says. But is that because he's angry at them and is scolding them? No, it's because he wants them to see the real answer for their lives. And, and so uh, the, uh, we here, our brothers and sisters, you and I, we sometimes live like shepherdless people, don't we? And we all profess the Savior. We belong to him if you're a Christian, right? But in our function, in our daily living, living so often, we're living as if there is no risen shepherd in our lives. So what does it look like for us as we minister to each other? It's going to look like listening. It's going gonna, it's gonna to feel a lot like just learning to listen better. Learning to understand. I love the book Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I love this one line in there. And uh, again, just to talk a little bit about the training, we're going to spend a lot of time how to be a listener, how to ask good questions of each other, how to get to know each other, your children, your spouse, 
learning to ask good questions. But, but Bonhoeffer says this. Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by Him who is Himself the great listener. Have we ever paused simply to praise God for that attribute? I mean, there are a myriad of attributes that the Bible gives us about the triune God. Sometimes the focus on God, or God the Father, sometimes the attributes of Christ. But this is one that I don't know if we think about that much. The fact that God would incline his ear toward us, that, that his, his hand is not too short and his ear is not too dull to hear us. I, I, picture, I picture my God as one who, who comes to the precipice of heaven and, and bends down and listens to the prayers of his people. His ears are attentive, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. His ears are attentive to the cries of his people. I will tell, tell you that the number one way I probably fail to love my wife well is right here. Now, please don't say anything to a spouse next to you right now. Some of you are starting to squirm. It's probably good that you squirm a little bit. This is probably the Spirit of God. I, I, I don't want to tell you it's the Spirit of God. I don't know that for sure. But I will tell you that my failure to listen well, which means I have to spend time and really try to listen, ask good questions, ask good open-ended questions. We want to talk about that particular ministry skill. And it is a skill, and it can be learned. It really can. I can, I can trace progress in my wife. <laughs> She's better at it <laughs> than I am. Learning then to listen. And, and learning then not to settle for labels that the world might give. And learning not to even settle for the labels that uh, you would give yourself. But learning to think biblically about the other person. There's something else though you see in verse 36 that Jesus did here. Because the text tells us that as he beheld these people who are harassed and helpless, these people who are like sheep without a shepherd, there was a holistic emotional response, and that is compassion. That word compassion is a word that has a, a very visible, or I'm sorry, a very, very uh, uh, graphic, a very visceral it has to do with your guts. It has to do with your insides. It has to do with something that is, is actually grabbing hold of you. It's not merely seeing someone in need, but it's seeing someone in need in such a way that you get gripped by it, that you want to help, that you want to move towards the person. There's, there's an inner churning that happens. This, this compassion is a, is a deep inward emotional response to to seeing someone in need and coupled with a desire to help that person, this, this tender inner concern. We're not talking about a sentimental, we're not talking about a, a condescending, oh, those people, too bad. I hope someday they get help. No, I, I feel for your struggle and I, and I want to be an instrument to the best I can. 
to help you. And so our Lord here is filled with compassion. There are about eight places in the New Testament where this word compassion is used. I'm sorry, in the gospel accounts. Um, and they're always about God or Christ. And uh, they're always about Jesus or the one case of the prodigal son's father. Filled with compassion. The other cases are about Jesus. Um, and, and what we find there is he responds to the, to the condition of suffering, the condition of uh, the lost sheep here, sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes it's the sheep in their rebellion. Sometimes, and you see that in the scriptures, the compassion God has for his stiff-necked people in Nehemiah, for example. It's an amazing passage. Nehemiah chapter 9, I won't go there time-wise, but, but there uh, God talks about the stiff-necked people and how he had compassion for stiff-necked people. I, I, I get compassion when people are suffering. It's a lot harder for me to think about compassion when people are rebelling. But that's the large-heartedness of God. And that's why he sent his son for rebellious people. And so whether they are the Isaiah 53 sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, or whether it's the sheep here in this passage, harassed and helpless, Christ moved towards, moves towards them with compassion. What keeps us from compassion? Same thing that keeps us from entering into the world of, of the person, right? Self-absorption, self-righteousness, self-superiority. Self-centered priorities. How do you develop this compassion? It's always going to start with God's grace in your own life. Before we came in here, we prayed um, with Pastor Tom, Pastor Nick, and uh, really appreciated Nick your prayer. You, you you prayed that God would help me to be gripped by God's mercy in my life. And uh, I appreciate that, and it, and it helped me. It helped me during the worship time just to reflect on the passage, but also on some of the great themes of the grace of God. That's where it's going to start for you as well. Having mercy will start as you contemplate God's mercy toward you in Christ, as you recognize the multi-million dollar sin debt that you were under and yet has been forgiven you. And now in turn you go and show mercy to other people. That's where it's going to begin as we own and repent of our self-centeredness and as we spend time then with people opening our eyes and recognizing that yes, they struggle, yes, they have their sin problems, but so do I and God in grace has changed my life. There's a third thing that Jesus does here. I've said that he enters into the world of people. He understands and, and he understands and feels the struggles of people, and then thirdly, he brings answers. Now, of course, he brings himself, and so you and I don't bring ourselves, we bring Jesus. Now, we bring Jesus, so we are actually part of that. We incarnate ourselves, we minister from our wholeness as brothers and sisters to other people, but here our Lord then brings his answers. And what we see in verse 35, 
Is his teaching, is his preaching the gospel of the kingdom, is his healing of every disease and sickness? In the preparation guide for today that you have on your website, I put a couple a parallel or a couple passages there that you can look at for you, uh, the small groups and uh, small group leaders. But but it's really not enough merely to enter into the world of someone, or or merely to compassionately feel the struggles and the the hurts and the suffering. We've got to be able to bring truth. We've got to be able to bring answers. Uh, we must not be like the, the EMT who arrives on the scene. He's there in the midst of the medical crisis. He surveys the situation. He then uh, determines what the problem is, and then he leaves and walks away. No, no, he acts, he responds, he does something. He applies a remedy. Maybe there's an immediate short-term remedy. Maybe someone is really under a crisis right now and just needs a touch, just needs a friendship, just needs a hello, just needs a brief prayer. But you also discern there's some themes going on here and they, they need a little bit of longer-term care as well. I'm not talking about professional counseling. I'm talking about sisters and brothers serving one another and helping one another, encouraging one another, the boundless number of one another passages that uh, the Scripture richly gives us there. So bringing then Christ and all His resources, the, the Word itself, whether you actually cite the text or have a Bible with you when you're chatting with someone, or whether you, you capture a Bible theme in your own words perhaps, but it's faithful to the text, that you, you bring a word from God. Um, you, you do so in de, uh, depending on the Holy Spirit. You do so with a recognition that, that it's the Spirit who takes the word. I've been reading in 1 Corinthians, just, just devotionally, and just been amazed on how much the Spirit of God is, is the active agent in the change in the life of the Corinthians. And uh, just finding some neglect there in my own life, it's easy for me to sit down to uh, minister to someone, talk to someone, and just kind of go at it. I mean, I've been doing pastoral ministry for a lot of years now, and, and, and I don't need the help, right? I know what to do. You see how, how treacherous that mindset is? I need the Spirit of God. Those of you who have been ministering for years, you need the Spirit of God, just like if you were a new convert trying to help a friend. You need the Spirit of God. And so what are the resources? The, the truths of the Scripture, as they're empowered by the Spirit, but also in the context of the body. The body of Jesus Christ. You. You are a provision. I, I tell my counseling students, you are part of God's provision for that person. You're not merely going to email a text or a truth. You're actually going to eye to eye and uh, hand to hand and face to face express the truths of God. And I, I look at your church uh, as a church that is so good at this and yet so much more you can do. I know you're good at it. I hear reports, not just from Tom. I hear from others uh, who, who love this particular church. And yet, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, you love each other, right? Love each other more. Let's, let's continue to grow as a congregation. Well, let me close with just a couple takeaway lessons here, and then I, I want to uh, 
um, just, just fix our minds on, on Christ at the end. And then we'll have some time for some, some reflection. And then one of your uh, elders will, will lead us. Just a few lessons. First, be sure that you yourself are experiencing this. Be sure that you yourself are communing with this Lord Jesus. That you're applying his provisions for your own life. That you're recognizing, as I said before, based on Matthew 18, the multi-million dollar debt that you've incurred, but that God in Christ has forgiven you for. That you recognize that he has come into your life, he has incarnated into the world, but then by the Holy Spirit, in the fullness of time, he not only sent his son 2,000 years ago, but at a certain point he sent his spirit into your heart, allowing you to cry out to God as your father. Uh, secondly, be sure that you are with intentionality seeking to enter the worlds of others. I mean, you're in the world of other people. Um, even if you live alone, you are still in the world of other people around you. Here, on, here this morning, you're in the world of others. But, but to be intentional, to be purposeful. And again, again, as it starts with your preparations on Sunday morning. It starts with your drive. It starts with um, when you get up in the morning there. Um, and that you would come with a desire to understand and even to feel the sufferings, the struggles of each other and realize that all of us need new and fresh mercies every morning and that you are one of the delivery agents can bring those new and fresh mercies from our shepherd. And then be sure that you're seeking to bring God's truth. That the counsel you give, the the way you try to help is flowing out from God's truth. And that's a function of growing in the Lord. It's a, it's a function of you studying the word. It's a function of you being part of a church like here where the word is, is preached. What has Jesus done for us? He has done everything I've talked about today. He has entered your world at a time when you opposed him. Romans 8 says a time when we hated God. God overcame that. He sent his son to die for you and be raised for you. He sent his spirit to change you. He then provides power and strength to be able to do the ministries he's called us to do, the marital ministries and the children's ministries and the workplace ministries, and even the ministries towards uh, extended family and uh, in-laws and, uh, and all that. God has given us the power to do that. And as we uh, seek to do that, when we fail, and we will, he continues to forgive us. And then what do we do? We confess our sins, knowing he is faithful and righteous, and he will forgive us of all our sins. So let's take some time just to reflect on this passage, some of the themes today, and then we'll have some uh, prayer.